Open up your Bibles, 1 John chapter 5. We're journeying our way through the Lenten season in the book of 1 John, preparing our way for what begins next Sunday, Passion Week, the most significant seven days in the history of the world, certainly the most faith-shaping seven days for our journey as a Christian. So we've been journeying our way through Lent asking this question, what's going to be different on Easter? When we wake up on Easter morning, what's going to be different? And we talked about the 40 days of preparation for in the Lenten season is about renewal and redirection. And what are some things that God is setting before us to say, hey, I want to renew this. I want to redirect this. And when I wake up on Easter morning, if I work some of these muscles and put some of these practices in place, some things can be different. And First John has helped be our guide in that. If you haven't already done so, pull out your notes in the bulletin, fire up the app. If you don't have the Eagle Church app, this is a good time for you to download it, and you can access the bulletin via the app as well to help you follow along. I've entitled this morning, The Overcoming Life. Maybe some of you have come in this morning and you're staring at a mountain that you're struggling to have hope as you stare at that mountain. You're fighting for hope. This morning, the first paragraph in chapter 5 says, there is hope in our fight for hope in the person and work of Jesus. And it's called the overcoming life. Let's listen to how John says it here. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone, notice that's a pretty all-inclusive word there. That means everybody, no matter what your mountain, no matter how hopeless the circumstances Everyone who, underlined, believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves, underlined, loves the Father, loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey, underline, obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In your notes, I put the Greek word John chose to use three times in those last two verses there. In verse 4 and 5, he used the word overcome. It's the word nikao. It's a, it's a term that means to prevail or to experience victory in the midst of a battle. Don't miss that now. Victory in the midst of a battle. That's the kind of overcoming life, John says. That's a nikao kind of life that's available to anyone who chooses to enter into it. And he had to have John, the oldest living disciple, near the end of his life, he had to have in mind what he heard Jesus saying as he was in the upper room and they had just taken the meal and he was doing his lengthy upper room discourse. And in John 16, 33, John remembers Jesus saying, in this what? In this life, what does it say? In this world, you will have what? Trouble. In this world, you will have trouble, but... But take heart, I have overcome the world. If you've got breath of life in your lungs, you're, you've experienced or are experiencing the first half of that verse, right? In this world, you're going to have trouble. There's going to be heartache and heartbreak in this world. 
There's going to be pain and suffering and disappointment. There's going to be pushback as you push forward. There's going to be times when you have no idea how you're going to get through whatever it is you're going through. In this world, not you might have, you will have trouble. Take it to the bank. If you've got breath of life in your lungs, this is going to be a grinding, persevering, never give up, one foot in front of the other, inch by inch, all the way to the end. And do you follow the logic here of John now in chapter 5 in the first paragraph? He's saying, hey, in the midst of that battle, here's the hope. You are an overcomer in Jesus. Do you see his logic here? So he's saying, hey, look, life's going to be hard. That a memo to anybody today? Life is hard. And it's going to be hard. And John says, just look at Jesus. Like, is there anything about Jesus' life that communicates convenience, comfort, and safety? That's like the unholy trinity of North American culture. Convenience, Comfort and safety. If you are organizing your life around those three primary values, Jesus is not participating with you in that life. That's not what his agenda is. He's got a lot more important things than convenience, comfort, and safety. And so John is saying, hey, Jesus, like, he had all power, all authority. If he wanted to make life comfortable and convenient and safe, he certainly could have done it. But he watched Jesus suffer and die and lay down his life. He watched the bloodshed. He watched the trial. He watched the injustice. He watched people desert him and betray him and deny him. He watched all of that. And his conclusion is, this life is going to be hard. And Jesus experienced all of that. And because Jesus overcame in the midst of that battle, we who believe in him, who place our trust in him, who have our confidence in him, we who do that, we also can experience this Nikeo life, this overcoming life. Do you see how it's all rooted in Christ? It's based on who Christ is. It's based on what Christ has done. Because Christ prevailed you will prevail because Christ was victorious in the midst of the battle. You and I, in Jesus' name, will be victorious. That is an overcoming life. And that's how we fight for hope in the midst of the battle. We've got to keep our eyes squarely, not on the circumstances. If we're just focused on all that we're pressing through and pressing on in, do you see how it's not the overcoming life, it becomes the overwhelming life at that point. But if we can keep our eyes locked in on what John is setting before us and say, there is a kind of life available to anyone in any circumstance at any time whose definition is victory in battle if you choose to enter into it. And so this morning we're gonna look at, well, what is Jesus offering an overcoming of what? We're gonna look at three things. He's saying you're overcome this in my name, and then how? From that paragraph in 1 John 5, how does he say we overcome that? So first the what, and then the how, and I put them there in your notes. So the first thing Jesus is gonna help us overcome is Satan. Satan, the devil, the serpent, the one on the scene in Genesis chapter 3 who clearly doesn't have our best in mind, whose agenda is outlined clearly in John 10.10 10, where Jesus said, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. What's Satan's agenda? 
to kill the good work of God in you, to destroy the joy of your salvation, to steal away any hope that your life is going to have eternal value. He's come to kill, steal, and destroy all of that. That's what he's doing. And Jesus gives us a great example of how, how about the battle with Satan that he, he kind of mirrors it. Have you noticed this in the spiritual life? As soon as you take a step forward, as soon as you kind of have a spiritual breakthrough, there's usually a wave of spiritual resistance that hits you. So in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. Great moment in his life. He had lived in obscurity mostly, carpenter's son, making footstools and wood benches. And then around 30 years old, he comes and steps out into his public ministry, and something really unique happens at his baptism. There in the Jordan River, it says the heavens opened, and the Spirit of God descended like a dove, and a voice from heaven came and said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Now, I know all of you have had exceptional baptism services. In your life, we've had some great ones here. But that's kind of at a different level, wouldn't you agree? Heavens open, Spirit of God descending, voice from above saying, This is my son whom I love. This is an amazing moment in Jesus' earthly life. What's the next segment in your Bible? At the end of Matthew 3, at the end of that baptism, what's the next paragraph say? He's out in the wilderness on the receiving end of a full court press of spiritual attack from Satan. And it goes on for 40 days. You talk about battle. That is the heat of the battle. Jesus came from baptism right out into the wilderness, enduring the battle. And the battle was so intense, he did overcome. But he was so spent at the end of the battle. Chapter 4, verse 11 in Matthew says, the angels were sent to attend him. To kind of renew and strengthen him for the next part of the journey. Anybody been there in life where you just feel like, Lord, I could use like a whole legion of angels to come on my behalf and just kind of revive and renew and strengthen because in the midst of the battle, in the midst of fighting for hope, of living the overcoming life, there are times it can get quite exhausting. You can get to the end of yourself. If Jesus experienced that, are you with me here? If Jesus experienced that on the backside of a spiritual mountaintop in his life, it shouldn't be any shock for us. That's why I often remind those being baptized here. I was like, hey, you know what? There's a good chance over the next 30, 60, 90 days of your life, it could be tough sledding. There could be some pushback because you've just taken a step forward and a step up for the name of Christ. And on the backside of that is there's a wave of resistance coming. And who's in charge of all that? Satan is, and Satan's agenda is to kill, steal, and destroy the good work of God by the power of the Spirit that's been started in you. He wants to derail that. He wants you to fall on your face. He wants you to give up. He wants you to stop fighting for hope. He wants you to cave and just go the overwhelming life and not live the overcoming life. That's his agenda. And so the first thing we see here with John is saying, hey, there's a kind of life linked up with Jesus. Jesus gets the last word. We see how this thing ends, right? A couple weeks from now on Easter Sunday, I mean, is there any better day as a follower of Jesus to gather with his people and worship and open his word and be reminded again that he got the last word and at the end, Satan's days are numbered. He's got a lot of uh, leash, he's got a long leash, a long rope right now. He can wreak havoc in all kinds of ways. But here's the thing, his days are numbered. And the end of this book says Jesus gets the final word and with that word, he's done. 
He doesn't get the last word. And the way the overcome, right? Revelation 12 says we overcome Satan, what? By the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. So his days are numbered. The overcoming life says, though Satan, you're gonna experience spiritual attack, that doesn't get the last word. So Satan, and then secondly, sin itself. Jesus says, hey, I'll help you overcome sin. Anybody need some help managing sin in their life these days? Anybody figured out, yeah, sin's quite powerful. Anybody figured out like the sticky note with sin system doesn't work? Like when you just kind of put the sticky note on the mirror or the dashboard and said, you know, I just need to stop doing this. Just tell myself really, really hard to stop doing that. It doesn't work really well. Sin's powerful. Part of its power is rooted in its short-term pleasure. Have you noticed this about sin? Like when you indulge the sinful nature, there is a short-term experience that has pleasure associated with it. Do you know that's how it gets its claws deeper in our heart? If we were like Pavlov's dogs, even the slowest learners among us, myself included, if you were 220 volt shocked every time you sinned, said, I mean, if you just, you know, you just had one of those things go through your head, you had that thought, you said that, oh, 220 volt ran through you every time, you'd quickly be stopped that, but that's not how sin works. That's my experience with sin. Genesis 3 says when they looked at the fruit, they didn't see it as nasty and worm infested. They saw it as good, pleasing, and desirable. Do you know that's how sin is at times? Have you noticed when you indulge the sinful nature, there's sometimes a a good, pleasing, and desirable short-term feeling associated with it? There's short-term pleasure in that. Like when you have the imaginary conversation with the coworker that you know you're going to have that meeting and you want to lay it, you want to put it to them, you want to put them in their place, you want to you, really, you have the imaginary conversation, right? You just say, hey, this is what they're gonna say and this is what you're gonna say and this is how they're gonna counter and at the end of it, here's gonna be like a oh, final hammer drop. You go through that whole thing in your head and you kind of enjoy that. What is that? That's sin. Long term, that's nothing fruitful in that relationship happening, but short term, it kind of feels good. When you vent your anger, when you just let it fly, what is that? Well, physiologically, they say something happens inside of you. There are certain things released chemically in your body on that venting that kind of gives you a soothing effect. Long term, it's very destructive. Lust, greed, pride, you name it. When you indulge the sinful nature, it deepens its appetite to be indulged again. Anybody need any help with that? I do. And Romans 7 says, here's our help, here's our hope. Here's how Paul put it. Eugene Peterson translated it this way. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Oh, how honest is that? Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. Hallelujah. Our hope for dealing with sin, for overcoming sin, is Jesus Christ's victory. What we'll be entering into starting next Sunday morning through the Passion Week There's our hope. 
And John is saying, hey, if you believe in him, if you're linked up with him, sin doesn't get the last word, as powerful as it is. Jesus enables you to overcome sin. You don't have to keep caving to the pull to indulge the sinful nature. Now, you can't do it yourself. The more you try to do it yourself, the more desperate you become for someone to help you. So the desperation for Jesus to step in and say, Jesus, I need strength and power by your spirit to overcome what I could never overcome myself. And he promises that. This is the Nikeo life. Satan, sin, and self. There's like the threesome of Jesus saying, hey, I'll help you overcome Satan, sin, and self. And when the Bible uses the term self, think of it as flesh, some of your translations. Think of it as old nature, old life, old self. Some modern day phrases call it the false self, being your true self, which is hidden with Christ in God. Your false self is your old nature, your old life, your old self. And this is what Paul was saying in Colossians 3. Here's a kind of a description of self, flesh. But you now, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. So here's the, the overcoming life Jesus offers. He says, hey, I offer you the kind of life where you can overcome your old self and you can put on a new self. Anybody interested in that? We just say, hey, you can actually learn how to become the kind of person God has created you in Christ Jesus to become. You can't do that yourself. The more you try to overcome yourself by yourself, the more desperate you'll be for Jesus to intervene. Because you'll get to the end of yourself trying to overcome yourself by yourself. And the overcoming life says you've got to come to Jesus, and Jesus is going to enable you to do something you could never do on your own, which is take off the old and put on the new. And this is a Nikeo life. And you say, well, Eric, how does this work? He's offering this, but practically, how does it happen? Because this is an invitation. When I read, I say, Lord, that's the kind of life I want. If I link up with you this way, you're saying, Satan, sin, and self. I want to overcome those mountains for sure. And then John, this is back to our first paragraph in chapter five now. And I had you underline the three words as I was reading through the text. No shock to you who've been a part of the journey with 1 John that these are the three words that he says, here's how, you over, here's how you enter into this overcoming life. Three words, verse one, 1 John 5, verse one says, everyone who, what have you underlined, believes that Jesus is the Christ. Verse two, loving God. Verse three, obey his commands. Here's the vocabulary for the overcoming life. Believe, love, obey. And you're like, Simpson, that's like magnificent monotony over this whole series. Yes, it is. That's actually one of the writer's phrases for what John says in the letter. When you read through 1 John, it's just filled with magnificent monotony. He just keeps saying the same thing over and over again. Believe Jesus is who he said he was. Put your eggs, all of your eggs, push all your chips to the center of Jesus' table and say this, Jesus, with my whole life, I believe. I believe you are who you said you were. I believe you did what you said you would do. I believe you were born of the Virgin Mary. I believe you were crucified on a Roman cross, not for your sin, but for the sin of the world. And I believe you walked out of the grave. I believe. I push my chips in, 
and the security and confidence of that belief is in two weeks when we gather and the grave is still empty. So the confidence and security to push those two chips in. I believe. I'm all in. That's the first step of experiencing the overcoming life. Do you believe? Is your confidence, your trust in what Christ has already done? You can't experience the overcoming life without an active entrustment of the whole of your being to him and to what he's done. You believe. Believe he is who he said he was. And then right on the heels of the believing, right, what does he say? Love. This is last week's whole message, right? If you, didn't, if you weren't here last week, so you can listen, right? 35 minutes on what does it mean to settle down in the furious love of the Father. Just settle down into that love. What difference does it make in life when you know you turn your face to the Father and you know his face has always been turned towards you in love? It doesn't matter what you've strayed into. It doesn't matter how long you've strayed there. The furious love of the Father, it's relentless. It's unconditionally, never gives up on us. He just keeps loving. And John says, out of the response of settling down to that furious love is you're gonna love him back. It's not that we love God as the starting point. It's that he loved us. That's what he said in chapter four. He made the first move. He said, I pursued you in love. When you had your back like Adam and Eve running the other direction, hiding in the bushes, not interested in anything about the kingdom of God, God still loved you and he loved me and you're here as an example of his furious love. He's never given up on you. No matter how overwhelming life has become, he's saying, hey, I'll invite you into an overcoming life. You believe I am who I said I was. And then you enter in and settle down into my furious love. You internalize the height and the breadth and the depth of all that God's love is for you in Jesus. You settle down into that. And you let that start seeping out. It's the difference between living, settling in his love. You live as a receiver instead of an achiever. That's the posture of settling down in his love. You can't achieve this kind of love. You receive it. You stand under the waterfall of his unbelievable, breathtaking love and grace, and you let that wash over your life, and out of the overflow of that, there is a fountain of love that you respond back, and you love the things that God loves, the way God loves them. Primarily people, all people, everywhere. So there's a believing component to the overcoming life. There's a loving component to the overcoming life. And then there's the obvious, what he keeps bringing up all through this book, there's the obeying component. So here's John saying, hey, you know who's believing and you know who's loving? He says it's pretty easy to figure out. Who's obeying? Who's walking in the ways of the Lord? Whose life, when your life, if this is a picture of your life, when your life runs up against what God's will is, when it's your way, your preferences, your plans, and you run in to God's ways and God's commands and God's plans, what gives? Who wins in that collision? John says that's how you're going to know who's believing and who's loving. Because the overcoming life is like this. You hit this, and then it turns to this. And you sit this, and you open hands. Say, Lord, I surrender. I trust. I don't always understand, but... Your ways trump my ways. I release, I loosen the grip, hands off the wheel, open my palms, open my heart, and say, Lord, I trust you. I'll walk in the ways as you command. 
I'll obey what I know and the strength that I have. That's the overcoming life. Some of you have been experiencing that in the first quarter of this year as you stepped out on some finances this way. Several of you have commented to me, hey, took you up on your tithing challenge has been the phrase. And that's awesome. That's great. And what's been so cool is hearing some of your stories, which hopefully we'll be able to tell some of those to the rest of the body at some point. But you know what that was? It's some of you coming and saying, hey, you know what? Financially in my life, it's kind of been like this. And then I run into God's commands. And here's what I've chosen to do over the last 90 days. I've chosen to just... And then what have you seen? I think you've been to experience some of the splashes of the overcoming life in your finances. And that's applicable to all areas of our life. Did you know that Jesus is right about everything? Everything. And the sooner I come to grips with that, the easier it is to do this. If I'm convinced I'm right, it's like, ah, uh, you know what, God, I understand what you're saying, but I think I know better than you. This isn't, then this isn't gonna happen. But, right, if you really, really believe Jesus is right, Jesus' ways are better, that Isaiah 55, his ways are higher than my ways, his thoughts are higher than my thoughts, if you really, really believe that, when then with this happens, here's the response. And that's the pathway to the overcoming life. So I don't know what mountain you're staring at these days that you might put the label overwhelming on. You're fighting for hope to see beyond that mountain. John says, hey, there is one named Jesus who offers a kind of life called a Nikeo life. It's a prevailing life. Notice, hear this now, notice Jesus does not offer, offer exemption from the battle. No exemption from the battle. Jesus didn't get a pass when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating drops of blood and he says to the Father, Father, is there any other way? Anybody else been praying that lately? You're looking at stuff in your life and you go, Father, is there any other way than to go through this? That's where Jesus was at. That would have been the moment the Father could have given the Son a pass. But he didn't. And then what did Jesus pray? Yet not my will, but yours be done. Surrender. It's not exemption from the battle. It's companionship and victory in it. That's the overcoming life. And so as we wrap up this morning during this closing song, uh, I think there's some in the room who maybe just have come today and carrying a fairly heavy load on some fronts. And that's what our prayer areas are for up here. And you just come. You come and kneel here. I have some folks available to pray with you. You want to pray by yourself, that's fine, but you just come and kneel, and maybe it's in that place where you're just saying, I'm fighting for hope, Lord, and I'm coming believing, loving, and obeying, knowing that you can help me see through whatever it is I'm going through, that I believe you do offer a kind of life, that already the victory has been won, and now we get to live out in the midst of all everyday battles a prevailing life but it's gonna be hard. And he offers companionship in all of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that John, boy, there's no one who probably understood more at the end of his run. I think it was John whose church history said they tried to boil him as a martyr and he didn't die. 
So they sent him to the island of Patmos to kind of get him out of the picture. I just picture John sitting on that island with all those scars from trying to, from being boiled and writing a letter that's filled with victory, revelation of how the whole thing ends. And Lord, there's some in the room and it's been an overwhelming set of circumstances and I pray that today they would hear ministry of your spirit into their brokenness and heartache and heartbreak and circumstances. May you open their eyes to see, deepen their roots of belief and faith and trust in you. Wash over them afresh with your overwhelming love. Help them to settle down in that. And then just breathe your hope. Thank you for being so clear that life is going to be really, really hard. But thank you for making a way that we can overcome because you overcame. So we worship you and we draw near to you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. While we stand together, ushers are going to come. We're going to receive a tithe.